I'm sure there are lots of presents unwrapped in many households uh, these last few days. Uh, have you ever heard Christians talk about Jesus being the greatest gift at Christmas? I wonder what you make of that statement. Uh, perhaps you wonder whether they're really uh, deceiving themselves. I, I mean, can it really be true? After all, you can't stream Netflix on Jesus, can you? You can't watch YouTube through your Bible. Uh, there's so many other exciting things that you can do that don't have anything to do with Jesus or the Bible or God's word or anything of the sort. Maybe when you hear Christians talk about Jesus being the greatest gift of Christmas, you wonder if they even believe it themselves. Is it just a little sentence they say to try and convince other people uh, of the need to become a Christian? Uh, And a related question is, do they actually mean that Jesus is the greatest gift? Or do they mean that Jesus can give us some great gifts? Like Jesus can give us heaven, for example, if you trust him and believe in him. And really, that must be the greatest gift. And Jesus is just like the greatest Santa Claus or some some other thing like that. I want to show you from Isaiah chapter 9, or starting from Isaiah chapter 9, four reasons out of the many that make Jesus the greatest gift of Christmas. If you start back in uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, uh, you, you hear what Isaiah is talking about. He's saying, look, in that time, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Distress will be gone. There will be the dawning of a great light. There will be an increase in joy, verse 2. There will be rejoicing. There will be freedom. There will be liberation from enemies. And the question is, what is causing all this goodness, this joy, this light, this new dawn? The answer comes in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. We're going to receive a gift, a gift of a son. And it's the son himself who is the gift. It's not just that the son will come and bring gifts, but the son himself will be a gift. That's emphasised by the way he goes on to describe what that son will be like. He'll be such a gift as one who is a wonderful counsellor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, a prince of peace. And the New Testament, especially Matthew's Gospel, makes it clear that this son that we are given is none other than Jesus himself. The one whose birth we celebrate at the time of Christmas. Now, when you opened your Christmas gifts these last few days... There are all sorts of messages that came with those gifts. They might not necessarily have been written on the packet, but they're implicit in what that gift, that toy, that luxury is designed to give you. This luxury, this treat is the source of real comfort. I noticed my Lindo chocolates, delicious as they are, promised to give me moments of serenity and pure bliss. I exaggerate not. Have a look at your box when you get home. You'll see that's what they promise. Uh, Fitness trackers and, 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 and health devices promise strength and life and vigor and vitality. Uh, books that we receive promise mindfulness and, and self-help philosophies that are the path to real freedom. Freedom from the, the difficulties of life or the uncertainties or anxiety. And even some of those things that you can't wrap up, the the Christmas dinners, the time spent with family, don't the adverts present this as the key to, to real joy? You will have a joyful Christmas if only you can get your family together around the table like this and enjoy a Christmas that looks like the one we're offering you. 
if you have this turkey or these sprouts to go with it. But all of these things, as good as they are, they all fall short. The best that they can offer is just a moment, just a glimpse, just a taste of the fullness of what they offer. And if you're quite rich and prosperous, or if you're quite diligent at hopping from one of these things to the other, then you might be able to, for a while, preserve the notion that you you feel like I'm living in light. I'm living in a place of rejoicing and freedom uh, and goodness and gladness. But really what's actually happening is you're only just about taking hold of one before it disappears through your fingers. And then you move on to the next, and then you move on to the next, and you move on to the next. And you never get the fullness of what is being offered to you. When you look at who Jesus is, this son who we are given, you will find that he is so much more than all of those, shall we call them empty gifts, put together. They're all, he is so much more than the promises and the, the, the comforts that we so often tend to amuse ourselves with. And it's because of who Jesus is that he really is the greatest gift of Christmas. I'm going to be looking at those four names that he is given at the end of verse 6 and showing you why Jesus is a greater gift than anything else you will have received or experienced this Christmas time. First, he's called the Wonderful Counselor. The wisdom that Jesus has is more valuable than any of the wisdom that the world can offer us. Wonderful Counselor, what does that mean? Uh, Often when we talk about a person being a counselor, we mean something like a therapist, someone you go and talk to and they they help you sort through the problems of your life. But that's not what is meant here really uh, when it's talking about Jesus as being the Wonderful Counselor. It's more like counselor in the sense of advisor. And especially in Isaiah's day, speaking to King Ahaz, Ahaz was one who needed some good royal advisors to instruct him on the right way to go. And that's what Isaiah was trying to do unsuccessfully. Um, But when this son comes, he will be a wonderful counselor. He'll be the one who's able to give real advice and guidance. Uh, And we hear later on in Isaiah's prophecy that the Spirit of God will rest upon this son. The Spirit of God will rest upon Jesus to enable him to do this. Now you might think, well, if the Spirit of God is resting upon him, surely that's got an emphasis on power or strength or ability. Surely it's the Spirit of God that enabled Jesus to do his miracles, wasn't it? Uh, But in Isaiah, Isaiah says it's the Spirit of God, it's a spirit that will be a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of understanding, a spirit of counsel, a spirit of knowledge, A spirit of fear of the Lord. Yes, and a spirit of power. All these things are listed in uh, chapter 11, verse 2, if if you're interested in having a look. But five out of six characteristics of what it will mean for Jesus to have the spirit, they're characteristics of wisdom. And you see that in Jesus' life. When you see him speaking and teaching and engaging with the world around him, you notice one of the most impressive things you notice about the way Jesus teaches is the way he can wriggle out of the trap would be, would be the wrong way of describing it. But he avoids the trick questions that the Jewish leaders bring to him. They once come and they ask him, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? It's a trick question. Because if Jesus says yes, then surely he's not the Messiah. Because the Messiah is coming to free us from the oppression of our enemies, the Romans. But if he says no, well, we've got him. 
and now we can hand him over to the Romans for um, uh, speaking against the Romans. It's a trick question. He's backed into a corner. And how does Jesus respond? Pass me a coin. Whose face is on the front? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. He avoids the trap while still maintaining his integrity and giving the right message. Another time they come to him with a woman who they've caught in adultery. And they say, Jesus, what should we do with this woman? Uh, we we recognise that you're the one who is full of compassion. Well, here's a woman and the law, the law of God himself says that we should stone this woman. Well, what do we do? And Jesus says, the one who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. He doesn't ignore the law of God. He, he doesn't reduce the sin that the woman has been found in. And he instructs her to, to leave her life of sin. But he challenges them on their assumption that they are without sin. And he maintains his integrity. Such wisdom in the way that he teaches. You see it in, in the way he's, he uses parables as well, for example. How can one story simultaneously do the job of bringing such comfort to lost sinners? And yet also such a strong rebuke against the religious leaders. That's what he did in the one story of the parable of the prodigal son. Or the two sons, as it's sometimes known. He offers this this. Um, this forgiveness to anyone who will return to the Father. And yet he condemns the Jewish leaders who presume that they're safe with the Father because their attitude to God is all wrong. As you listen to Jesus teach, as you read what he says in the Gospels, you find that he is just so full of this spirit of wisdom that Isaiah spoke about. Now that's all well and good, you might say. But what a wise man. Yeah, we see how, how wise Jesus is. But Isaiah is telling us that this son is given to us. Surely his wisdom is for my benefit. Surely it's to affect me and to help me and to guide me. Not just to make me impressed at how much wiser he is than myself. What benefit is there for us of Jesus' wisdom? How is it going to lift me out of this darkness uh, that Isaiah describes us to be in? Well, look, many even today, whether they're Christians or not Christians, recognize the wisdom of some of the instructions that Jesus has given us. Perhaps you yourself have designed your Christmas celebrations this year around Jesus' warning, for example, that uh, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Perhaps you've designed it around Jesus' truth that it is more blessed to give something than to receive something. Perhaps you've designed it around that golden rule of loving your neighbour as yourself. And many people recognise these teachings of Jesus as wise. And they say, that is a good thing to apply to my life. I ought to seek to follow that. But what they do is they pick and choose out of Jesus' teaching. And they pick these little sentences and they try and apply them as, as plasters onto the difficulties of their life. Maybe if I love people a little bit more. Maybe if I'm a little bit less materialistic, things will improve. But Jesus didn't come to give us sticking plasters. He came with a whole gospel message. And the message that Jesus has given us is a message that you will find nowhere else in the world. You see, the world so often says, you can do it. You can do it, it says. Okay, you've got difficulties in your life. Sometimes you get things wrong. Sometimes you make mistakes. But really, you're a good person. You just need to try a bit harder, a little bit more discipline, 
Maybe use these tools. Maybe use this way of thinking. Maybe read this book. Maybe educate yourself in this way. Maybe get these friends around you and you can do it. You can be the best version of you. You can be better than the others. You can be the one that you want to be. You can achieve your dreams. You can do it, is what the world says. And maybe you have heard some of that through your Christmas gifts this year. Those fitness devices, those uh, educational books, those beauty products even. Some things even tell us to, well, just just ignore the, the problems of your life. You are already it. You are already what you ought to be. That's what the luxuries uh, offer us. Just ignore the reality of life and enjoy the good things that you already have. But Jesus says, you haven't got it in you. You have not got it in you. Your uncleanness, your faults, your dirtiness, your sin, doesn't just it's not just a result of the mistakes you make and the things you do wrong. It's deep within your heart. It springs out from within you. Right down at your core, you are broken. You are damaged. You are hurting. And your your uncleanness is not just seen in the way you do things wrong. In the way you are unable to love really selflessly, consistently, even the people closest to you in your family. Because sin is not just about the things that we end up doing. Sin is rooted deep down within us. That's the problem. This is the wisdom of Jesus. Now, if you've never come across this wisdom of Jesus before, it might not sound like wonderful counsel. It might not sound like wonderful wisdom. It might sound bigoted, offensive, insulting. What do you mean? It's me. It's my heart. What do you mean I'm wrong deep down inside? But Christians find that there is simply no other message that makes such sense of the world in which we live. Why is it that after three or four days of lavishing generosity upon our children, all they ever respond with seems to be selfishness and entitlement? Do you notice that at times? Do you ever notice it in yourself? You, you, you receive from others and your response in return seems to be entitlement. Is it? Why does that happen? Is it because there's still something else that we lack? Is it because there's still some other rule that we ought to apply to, to our children or to ourselves or to our families? Or is it because Jesus is right when he tells us that deep down within, sin has damaged us. Sin has taken hold. And we need to be released from that. When you begin to listen to Jesus, you find his wisdom, his counsel, his advice, his guidance to be so much more valuable, to be so much more true than any of the false promises that the world gives. And when you hear him on this point of our sin, you also begin to hear him on many of the other important questions about life. Just who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be making of myself? How am I supposed to achieve that? Jesus applies himself to these questions, gives us answers that we will not find anywhere else. Secondly, his power is more effective. He's called, the second name, he's called the mighty God. 
Now this joins uh, the, the prophecy back to a few chapters earlier. That famous prophecy when Isaiah says the virgin will be with child, will give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And now Isaiah is saying that son is going to come and he is going to be the mighty God. Now what is the purpose of this God, this son coming? When Isaiah meets with God in chapter 6, he is overawed by God. He is fearful. Woe is me. He said, I'm ruined. When God comes, when people in the Bible meet with God, the most common response is one of fear. Is that going to be the response when this son comes, when the mighty God turns up on our doorstep? Well, no, this time he's going to come not to judge, not to condemn, but to save. You could translate it the the hero God in this verse, uh, as well as mighty God. And when he comes to save, it's not with a kind of hopeful, uh, let's give this a try, uh, seeing if this will work. Uh, The sort of hopefulness that Assyria will be the sort of saviour for Israel. Ahaz was trusting that Assyria's might and and his military power would save Israel. But Assyria himself, uh, Assyria themselves also ended up needing a saviour of their own. They were swept away with Israel along with them. But no, this saviour who's going to come is going to be the mighty God. And he will not be shaken from his purpose. He will achieve what he has come uh, to achieve. And when you look at Jesus' life, you see that power on display from the very beginning. From even before he begins his ministry, he's turning water into wine at weddings. You see Jesus' power on display in the way that he heals the sick and the paralysed. You see it on display in the way he feeds 5,000 hungry men and their families with them with just five loaves and two fish. You see it the way he controls the wind and the waves with just a word. You see it in the way he drives out demons and even raises the dead. You see it in the way that he knows every thought and evil intention of those enemies who would have him dead and off the scene. Whatever attack, whatever um, frustration, whatever hindrance comes Jesus' way throughout his ministry, he plows on. Nothing seems to stop him. Nothing can hinder him. Nothing can slow him down because he has the power of the mighty God working in him and through him. Again, All well and good, you might say, for the leper who was healed, for the paralysed man who got his legs back, for the widow whose son was raised to death, but from the dead. But but what about me? What about us today? Is this might and power of Jesus any good for us? Or is it just good for those who were able to meet with him two thousand years ago? Look, the the greatest display of Jesus' power isn't in any calming of the storm it isn't in any healing of the sick it isn't in any raising of the dead the greatest demonstration of Jesus' power is when he himself rose from the dead in his own resurrection that is greater than the resurrection that he performed for the sake of those those people that he met people like Lazarus and, and the widow's son it is greater than those resurrections. Those resurrections, they, they receive life as a gift, as like a second chance. It, it is greater than Jesus performing the miracle, because he already has his life, and he gives of his life to those who do not have life. But in Jesus' resurrection, 
He's had all of his life taken from him. He is truly and utterly dead. Death, our greatest enemy, has hold of him in its grasp, in its claws, and he is gone. And yet Jesus still has power to take back his life and to be raised from the dead and to be resurrected. That is the greatest demonstration of Jesus' power. That is the greatest demonstration that he has all the might of God. And having defeated the greatest enemy of human existence, death itself, then he now offers that same gift of life to all who would join themselves to him. He offers it as a gift. Here it is. Take it, he says. Believe in me. Follow me. Uh, But this gift doesn't come as something separate from himself. This gift is himself. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. Whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life. There are many, many good gifts that you can receive at Christmas time. Gifts that will make life more enjoyable, uh, more interesting. Uh, Perhaps even gifts that will make your life last a little bit longer. But can any of them restore life once it is taken from you? Only Jesus has power to do that for you. Only Jesus is the one who has defeated death and offers that same gift to those who follow him. The third name is given in Isaiah is the everlasting father. And through this name that we see his, his love is more gentle than any love we can find anywhere else. When we hear the everlasting father applied to Jesus... For those who are familiar with the doctrine of the Trinity, it's tempting to to jump to ideas of the Trinity. That there is one God in three persons, Father, Son and Spirit. Uh, And what must be happening here, therefore, is Isaiah is talking about Jesus. He calls him the Father. Maybe it just means that that Jesus and the Father are very closely related. Uh, Didn't Jesus himself say that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father? Is that what's going on in this verse? Uh, Well, I think that confuses the Trinity. The Father and the Son are very closely united. They are one, as it were. But they're still distinct persons. The Father is not the Son. And also we miss an important clue from within the passage itself. We began reading from chapter 8, verse 16, where Isaiah says, Bind up the testimony, seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face. I will put my trust in him. Here am I and the children the Lord has given me. Who is it that's speaking in those verses? It's tempting to think it must be Isaiah. Perhaps it's Isaiah and his family waiting for God to give him uh, the faithful believers who will wait for God's testimony to come. But the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament says, actually, in these verses, it's Jesus speaking. Jesus waiting to be given the children that God has prepared for him. And so when it describes Jesus as the everlasting father, it's describing him as the leader of our faith. Our father, as it were. He is not only our brother, he is not only our friend, he is not only our lord, he is not only our servant, he is also our father. And by describing him as our father in this way, it contrasts him to the fathers of Israel. Those religious leaders who had abused their positions who had taken all the best things of the land and and pushed others aside. It offers him as the solution to the widows and the fatherless. You see those mentioned in chapter 1 and chapter chapter 10, verse 2 is the closest place to here you see it. This son who will come is the solution to the plight 
the difficulties that the fatherless face. And rather than people now being left abandoned or misled by greedy, self-righteous, self-seeking religious leaders, they're going to be cared for. They're going to be nurtured. They're going to be built up and encouraged and provided for by one who is like a father to them. When Hebrews describes these verses uh, as talking about Jesus, it does it for the sake of making the point that Jesus is of the same family as you and me. He's of the same family in the sense that he is like us. In fact, he has become like us. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus becoming like us. Like us not just in the sense that uh, the eternal spirit of the Son uh, became flesh, but like us in the sense that he experienced the same things we experience. He suffered. He was tempted. And even in the end, he endured the ultimate fate of death. He became like you and me. Why? In Hebrews... The point is, so that Jesus can sympathise with us, so that he can help us, so that he can encourage us. Do you ever feel too sinful for Jesus? Do you ever feel like your prayers surely would not be heard by Jesus? Because you're not a good enough Christian? You don't love him enough or serve him enough? Jesus has become like you. Jesus knows the temptations you face. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted and attacked by the devil. And he's able to sympathise with you. And he remains faithful to you. He continues to love you. He continues to nurture and encourage you. Before he was crucified, Jesus was speaking to his disciples and he says to them, I'm about to go, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. You recognise how that word links to him being the father? I'm not going to leave you without parents. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send my spirit. And he will guide you. And he will strengthen you. And he will provide for you. If you're seeking your value or worth from anything in this world that you can, that you can touch or hold or taste or perform, then you need to realise that you will never have enough. It will always be like trying to please that, that stereotypical old dad. Uh, you're always trying to please and nothing is ever quite up to the standard that he sets. That's, that's what it's like, trying to, trying to find your worth and your value in things of this world. But Jesus is an everlasting father, full of goodness and compassion, full of love. And he says, if you're weary of trying to perform to meet the standard... If you're weary of being told that you're not good enough. If you are downtrodden, then I am a place of acceptance. I am a light burden. I am a loving father to you. His love is more gentle than anything that the world can offer. And finally, he is the Prince of Peace. And through this name, we're reminded that his peace is more secure than anything that the world can offer. He is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah calls him. Uh, what sort of peace then is he going to bring? Will it be uh, political peace? It's interesting that this Christmas we've had the Brexit trade deal accomplished. I did see one headline 
uh, people saying that the best Christmas gift we could have hoped for was a trade deal uh, to lead us out of Europe. Is it the peace of peace and quiet, tranquility? It gives you time on your own, a really nice relaxing holiday, somewhere hot and somewhere isolated. Is it world peace? Has Jesus come to end all wars? Has he come to make peace between you and the people that you meet in the streets and in your jobs and in your neighbourhoods? Is it social acceptance that he's come to give? When you listen to Jesus' teaching, he, he speaks against most of these types of peace. He warns his disciples, look, the world is going to hate you, just like it hated me. You're not going to be loved by everyone. He warns us that there will always be wars, there will always be famine and poverty, as long as this world goes on until he returns. He warns us that he's not come to give us a life of peace. Peace and quiet, he means. Tranquility, rest, ease. That's not what he's come to give. What peace does he bring then? The most important type of peace anyone could hope for. That is peace with God. Peace with God. Romans 5 says, since we are justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we are justified. When you stand before the throne of God on the day of judgment, will you be at peace with God? Or will he stand opposed to you? Will your sin flare up his anger? Or will you be welcomed into his arms of love? Jesus secures peace with God for you. How does he do that? Think back to his death and resurrection. We've already spoken about his resurrection. How uh, in his resurrection he defeated your greatest enemy, which is death. But there was something else going on in his death and resurrection. He also endured and paid your punishment. As he was crucified, all those who have been joined to him through faith were being punished in him. The punishment for my sin has been paid for. Christ took it on himself in the cross. Because I've been joined to him by faith. If you're trusting Christ, the punishment for your sin can be taken. Completely paid for. And it's finished. Do you know how it's finished? Because he rose from the dead. The punishment that our sin deserves could not keep its hold upon Jesus Christ. Death could not keep him in the grave. He paid the punishment and he rose from the death, uh, from dead. And it gives you and I confidence that our punishment has been paid. And that on the day of judgment we will not be declared guilty. We will not be condemned. We will not be destroyed by God's anger. We will be welcomed into his love. We will enjoy peace with God forever and ever. But that peace then also brings other types of peace. It brings the peace of a clear conscience. There is no more guilt, no more shame for those who have been forgiven in this way. You don't need to carry around the burden of the mistakes that you've made even many years earlier, any longer. Because you know it's been dealt with in Jesus Christ. That's a peace. That's a burden that can be relieved from your shoulders. There is the peace of being welcomed into his family. It's not just you who can receive this gift. There are many thousands, millions around the world who are trusting Christ to receive this peace. And when you trust him, you're brought into his family. Because you've been forgiven, you're able to forgive others. 
True peace between believers. Peace about your future. If God was willing to give his own son to secure your peace with him, then won't God also guide the future to protect you, to do what is good for you, to give you the things you need? It won't mean that everything is plain sailing, but you know there's no no need to be anxious. You know there's no need to worry, because the God who has given his own son for your sakes is still in control of all of history. And there is peace about your salvation. Are you good enough? Will your good deeds outweigh your bad on that day of judgment? It's an entirely irrelevant question. Because Jesus has paid the price already. It is finished, it is done, and he has risen to prove it to us. We can have peace that we are accepted by God. Many other gifts in this world offer peace of all sorts. Peace and tranquility, most often. An aromatherapy, bubble bath. Get rid, clear away the, 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 the difficulties of the week. It's nothing compared to the peace that can be only, only be found in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you see Jesus for who he is, what, what response ought we to have? Don't make the mistake of ignoring him. Don't make the mistake of pushing him aside for, for yet another year until you come back to church next Christmas. Don't make the similar mistake of being willing to include him in certain parts of your life, certainly Sunday mornings, perhaps some midweek evenings, perhaps one or two days of the year where you pay him honour, but restricting him from the rest of life. Don't make the mistake of uh, leaning on him when things get difficult, but ignoring him through the happier times. He's worth more than every happiness that this world can offer. And if you are ignoring him, even in the smallest sense like that, you're ignoring so much of what he has come to give us. To us, a son is given. The only right response from us ought to be that we cherish and love and seek after this Lord Jesus, our Saviour. We're going to pray to close. And then the congregation here are going to go outside to spend some time singing together. And the congregation who are watching on Zoom will sing on Zoom. Let's just pray now together. Lord Jesus, we praise you for who you are. You are a wonderful counsellor, full of truth, full of grace and wisdom. Help us to take more notice of what you teach us. Help us to devote ourselves to your word that you've given us so that we might live in obedience to you, so that we might take on uh, the, the truths that you reveal to us. You are a mighty God. You are full of power. You have defeated death itself. And you make us the promise of receiving that same life. We look forward to the day when you return, when we will each be resurrected to new life. A life of eternal service, love, glory. We thank you for that promise. We praise you that you are our everlasting Father. So many metaphors that we are given to describe your relationship to us. And we thank you that Father is one of them. It shows us of your great love. And in that role as our Father, you reveal something of the eternal Father. Your Father to us. 
His outpouring of, of life and love and goodness is reflected in the way you relate to us as our saviour and as our guide. You are the Prince of Peace. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have peace with God through faith in you. Thank you that that peace is certain and secure. Thank you for the effects that it has in our life, that it, that it frees us from guilt, that it frees us from anxiety, that it frees us from worrying about whether we will one day be saved. We can know we have eternal life even today through the peace that you have secured for us. We thank you for these gifts. We thank you for who you are. And we pray that into 2021, you would help us to cherish you and love you all the more deeply. In your name we pray and for your glory. Amen.